You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Good morning. This morning, we resume our third week in the study of the book of James. If you don't have a scripture journal, they're on the coffee table or in the lobby after the service, or you can go now and get one as well. Make sure you get one of these copies. It's, it's a really helpful tool that we've been using the last two sermon series that has the scriptures on one side with notepad on the other. And what's really wonderful about this, if you're the kind that likes to scribble notes in your Bible's margin, you don't have to do that. You have this journal dedicated to this study and this time of prayer, that you have plenty of space to reflect and write. I want to invite you, join us. It's not too late. Join us in the study. Grab a scripture journal that's in the lobby um, as we continue uh, to study James together. James has been teaching us in these first two chapters, and today we begin the third chapter, what it looks like to live whole, bearing the fruit of someone who has encountered Jesus and their inner life has been changed so much so that you see the fruit on their outer life. So we say the word integrity all the time. Integrity means that something is whole, that has, it kind of holds together consistently, it's coherent. And so often our lives don't have the integrity of the gospel, the inner life that's been transformed by Jesus and the outer life and the fruit that should be one and the same. Does that make sense? So James is pointing us, this is what it looks like to have an inner life and an outer life that have integrity. Last week, we talked about hypocrisy, about acting one way while believing something totally different or telling your children to do this, but like do as I say, not as I do kind of lives, that hypocrisy of the church and of Christians that should not be so. The, the, the last week, did I say last week? I meant the week, the first week. Last week, we talked about favoritism. Do you recall the passage where the rich people come to the church and we say, here, have a seat of honor. And the poor people show up and we, we turn a blind eye and say, I don't know what you're doing here. That favoritism in the church is actually completely opposite of what we see in the kingdom of God, the way God favors and adorns and gives dignity to the poor. They're the first ones in the kingdom. The church should act likewise. James is working on us. And he's showing us that how, what it looks like to have a life, like an actual personal and communal life, not just some idea. Think of your life, the one you have today, and our life, the one we have as a community. What would it look like to have a life, in that sense, planted in Jesus? On the inside and out, we would see the gospel coming to bear. Our motivations, our desires, our goals, our priorities, all of this. Can you imagine a life in which there is nothing that escapes the invitation to repent and believe the gospel? That sounds radical, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound kind of crazy? That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian community, where there is nothing that escapes the news that God reigns over all things and is inviting you into his kingdom because he's making all things new through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Nothing escapes that in the Christian life. Amen? Can you all say, let's practice. Amen? Amen? There we go. We're awake. Here we are. So today in chapter 3, James, with all of this in mind, he turns our attention to the tongue. Some of the most hurtful experiences in our lives, if you can think back with me, have to do with things that people have said to us. We can think of three or four right now, right, just sitting here. 
hurtful words, things that cut super deep, things we just can't even seem to shake. We can't forget about the words that are said to us. We can forget about the compliments so easily, but those harmful words, they stick with us. They wound us almost for life, especially when they come from those we love. Isn't it interesting though how readily we can remember the words that were said to us and yet how difficult it is for us to remember the words we've said to others? I was even thinking about this myself. Like, I can't remember a ton of really hurtful things I've said to people. I'm sure I have. It's not that other, those other people that aren't in this room are the ones saying those words, causing that hurt. No, it's, it's us. There's no other people. It's us. There is power in the things that we say. Lasting effects happen in people's lives based on the things that we say with our mouths, with our tongue. James is fully aware of this. Things that not only we have said, but also those things that we have left unsaid that need to be said. Those words of love and of kindness and of affirmation. Even words of correction and mercy. What we say has an incredible power, more than we're willing to admit, has the power to do good and to do harm. And this is nothing new. This is, think about this with me. The idea of spoken words, of words having creative force is nothing new in the biblical story. God spoke into existence the cosmos. In the beginning was the word, the creative genius of God made visible and material in the flesh of the incarnate Jesus. In the beginning was the word. This was Jesus. He came teaching about the kingdom of God, announcing not with just his actions, but Jesus came preaching, came saying the words of the kingdom so that people could hear them and respond to them. This is all throughout the biblical narrative. And then he sends his disciples into the world announcing the kingdom, teaching them everything I've commanded you, is what he said. In the church, it's the same way, even more so. Every sacramental act, if you pay attention today, the words that we say, it's not that we're just running through a liturgy, people. We can like, we can say all kinds of things, right? But the intentionality about the exact words that we're saying don't come from a snobbery kind of place of like, well, this is what the early church did. That's cool. Um, but being, just being the early church doesn't actually like rend our hearts to the Lord, right? We actually have to be present to the words that we're saying. And all of the words that we have before us in the liturgy, words like, this is my body. Can you imagine the power in that word that Jesus himself has given to his church? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Trinity being announced over you saying, this is who you are. Power of words, even in our worship in the church. We stand right after this sermon and announce our faith, what we believe. You know, we don't just stand in silence and just like everyone think about what you believe. No, we say them with our words. We announce them. We get on our knees and we confess with words what we've done that hasn't measured up to the perfect standard of the goodness of God in our confession of sin. So much of our discipleship, in other words, involves us learning to speak the language of the kingdom of God. And friends, um, maybe it's just me. I doubt it. I need to learn to speak like Jesus. I need to learn that my mouth 
belongs to the kingdom, that I'm an ambassador, a representative speaking on behalf of the Lord, oftentimes into the lives of other people who are listening. That's intimidating, isn't it? Wouldn't you all the more want to take on the grammar of Jesus, the grammar of the kingdom, the way God says things, the way he does things, even with our lips, with our tongue, learning to speak like Jesus, could you imagine? Now with this in mind, this is what James writes. There's all the background. Verse one in chapter three says this, knowing the power of words, okay? Here's the backdrop. James says in verse one, not many of you should become teachers. (laughs) My brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When we're ordained, one of the Bible verses that's read to us after we're laying on our face, our face on the floor before the bishop and the church is praying that God would have mercy on our poor souls. One of the Bible uh, passages that's read over us um, is the warning that uh, if we teach falsely or lead the sheep astray, it would be better for us to have a millstone wrapped around our neck and thrown into the lake of fire. Talk about like inspiration for new priests. Not all of you should be teachers because there's such power in the spoken word. Those teachers here in James' use is talking about those who instruct others in the church. People like myself, some of you teach as well. Among the brothers and the sisters, this is a cue, that phrase is not just a a general phrase of like humanity, but is a cue speaking about the community that is the church. Those who speak for the kingdom and explain, exposit the scriptures, like we've heard them read, who explain them to us, who announce the gospel of Jesus and God's way of doing things, who offer correction and rebuke and guidance to others, should be very wary of the words that they yield, right? This is such an important and powerful thing. In the gospels, in Matthew 8, 19, we we can recall many instances of this, but in this particular example, Jesus himself uh, was often identified as a good teacher, right? People ascribe to him, what you're saying is good. You're a good teacher. A term that stuck with those that he, Jesus, turned to his apostles and sent them as teachers of the most precious message of the gospel for others. Think of the women who ran into Jesus on Easter morning, who were sent with news to go and tell. These were the first gospelers that the church had, the first preachers, really, sent into the world to announce that Jesus is risen. They were the stewards of the most powerful news the world had ever known. The most life-changing, think about this, the most, life, most life-changing teaching was entrusted to ordinary people like these women who found Jesus at the tomb. Of course, these people who have been given this wealth will be held to a higher standard. Can you imagine if the disciples turned and taught something other than what Jesus had taught them? Or can you imagine those women going to the disciples and and not telling them that Jesus had risen from the dead or said something else, like only in spirit, but not really in body? Can you imagine if they added their own little interpretive slant to this precious message? Of course, they're held to a higher standard. You don't have to go much further to remember in the gospels when Jesus turned to those scribes and Pharisees who were doing just this, who were taking the teaching of God and perverting it, applying it some other way. Jesus was 
brutally harsh. If you read the scriptures, you would have just a little bit of sympathy for these poor folks that were directing the, teacher, the teachers of the law who were directing the teaching of God in the wrong direction for God's people. Now, this isn't to say that teachers like me were perfect. No, we, we can't always get it right. We're not perfect. But that doesn't mean, on the other hand, that we should take lightly false teaching, false instruction, hypocritical teaching. Look at verse 2. For all of us makes mistakes. James admits this. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put, verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it only takes, that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. A sermon, for instance, with an ungodly agenda can do some serious damage to a church, right? We've, I mean, if you've been to any church uh, over the last, like, give it some years, you've probably experienced an ungodly agenda in a sermon. A teaching that argues for something that departs from who Jesus is and the way God does things, it's harmful. It can lead an entire community astray. It's such a little thing. It's just spoken words. It's just a teaching, right? But it's like a rudder of a huge ship. False or harmful words can steer that ship in totally the wrong direction. And so, yes, we would expect that those who are teaching people like myself would have the fear of God struck in them that they wouldn't master the message of God, but that the message of God would master them and they would be faithful stewards of that message, right? But friends, it is not just pastors and priests, people in positions like me. Yes, it is this, but it is more than that. All of God's people are responsible for how they speak to others, isn't that right? We would say that, we would, yeah, we say, and you should say amen to that, and like verbally, because that would make sense with what we're talking about. Amen, Sean. We are responsible for the way we use our words. But we're so good, me included, we are so good with opting out of this vocation, this calling. We are so good that we've got phrases built into our vernacular that help us opt out. With all due respect, I can say anything I want now. I'll just, let me just, I'm just going to be honest. No offense, but, right? We, we, people say this, we say this. Do these phrases unhook us from the responsibility of obeying Jesus? Do we really think that, that they let us loose to do whatever we want, to all of a sudden act like we haven't been baptized and joined into the death and resurrection of Jesus and now are living members of his body? Do these phrases unhook what God has done in bringing us into his people? We know that it doesn't. But functionally, we often act like it does. What our culture makes virtue, makes celebratory in speech, we, church, we have to see it and resist it. We have to. You're not brave, for instance, you are not brave. And this is like a public virtue, so I'm just gonna 
Announce it, call it out. You're not brave for publicly insulting someone on social media, ever. Like what? You should like write them a letter. Call them, go see them, speak with them in love. But like smearing someone publicly, Christians, that should just be like something that's way out of reach for us. What is that about? We don't do that, especially when it's our own gain or when we think, oh, I need to just rant, get this off my chest publicly. It's not that we can't speak truthfully to people. It's the way we do it publicly, our use of words among other people that make us look good and wise and knowledgeable and put someone else down and demean them and strip them of their own voice. But Sean, this is how politics is, right? Why can't we do? No, you're the, we're the people of God. We have an entirely different politic in play in the church. No amount of emojis can cover up the harm of a cruel text. Super harmful thing. Smiley face, right? No. Cowards who leave things unsaid can just be as equally harmful and hurtful. When you know you need to go and apologize for something. When you know you need to own up, oh, this is so tough, but I need to say something to you. I was wrong. We can't opt out for passive aggressive kind of behavior or manipulative and coercive ways of speaking that help us sideline and kind of step out of the direct role of being humble before someone and just speaking honestly and truthfully in love and in grace and in gentleness. I'm fine, don't worry about it, but like seriously, that was a terrible thing you did to me. That should be totally foreign to the people of God. If we must, church, I know I'm like beating us like a pinata this morning. I'm in the same group. If we must, though, go and dip your mouth into the baptismal waters again. This would be an awkward thing to see someone do. <laughs> put some of that water on your mouth somehow. Maybe not put your face in it, but like put some water on your mouth. Let's do that, right? Remember that even your tongue is baptized. All of it is baptized. All of it belongs to Jesus. There's nothing left of you that doesn't belong to him. And so, therefore, you have to speak for him. You are stewards of his message. You're stewards of his way of messaging even to others. We have to understand that the tongue is so powerful and our tongues belong to the kingdom. We are messengers, heralders of the gospel of the kingdom. And we have to use our voice. We must use our voice according to the purposes of God. You know what this may require? It's saying, God, I wanna listen to you. How should I use my words? We may, before we speak, have to listen. And not just like to news media or like mentors or friends, but we may actually have to spend hours and hours and hours in prayer to have something to say. This is totally normal for Christians, folks. And let me just remind us, before you get going on something, just like time out real quick. Lord, where's your voice? Can I hear from you? So often when I'm preparing sermons, I think of a story of my dad. He's also, he's a Methodist preacher. And he had this moment where he, he had all of these sermons out before him and he pushed them all aside, threw them away and said, Lord, I'm not gonna say another word to your people unless you speak to me. That affected me so deeply because every time now I write a sermon, I'm haunted by that story. John, you have nothing to say if the Lord hasn't spoken to you. Could we be that people too? Not just with preaching, but... In every way, we use our voice. 
And another aspect of this, besides asking the Lord to speak to us, is to be aware that God is actually listening to the things that we say, even outside the church. Even the way we, we treat people in the service industry when we're like ordering food and maybe they get something wrong, guess who's sitting there with you? Jesus. And he sees you treating these people this way. Huh. If only we became aware that God is not somewhere else but with us. I wonder how our lives would change. I wonder how much care we would give to our voice with others. James says at the end of verse 5, how great a forest is ablaze, set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and itself is itself set on fire by hell. Yikes, James. Take it easy, my man. Verse 7, for every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. Listen to this. But no one can tame the tongue. A restless evil full of deadly poison. No amount of willpower, no amount of like taking notes of like, I shouldn't do what Sean just said, is actually going to tame your tongue. It's going to take even more. It's going to take more than what you've got to offer. It's going to take you surrendering to the grace of God and saying, Lord, I need an inner renovation so that what pours forth this is fresh water out of this fresh spring that you, Jesus, have renovated, that you, Holy Spirit, have filled and changed and transformed. The tongue is such an interesting indicator of what's really going on inside of us. With it, we bless the Lord, the Father, and Father, Verse 9, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. We can't be a kind of people who on the outside say nice words, but on the inside are rotten. Because in reality, and when, things aren't, when people aren't watching, when we're all alone, what comes out is actually a reflection of what's going on inside of us. And we should just be honest with the fact that we need the touch of Jesus inside of our lives. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water, verse 11, or 12? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. What is in the heart, friends, finds its way out in our voice, in our speech. Those who talk nice of God here and curse those out there who are made in his image. That should be like a really uncomfortable hypocrisy that we see, right? We have to wonder if people who can do both things, worship God in here and then curse others, even in like the slightest, most artistic and poetic way, cursing others is still cursing others. And we have to wonder if that heart, whoever that is, if that heart has been fully cleansed, has been rinsed out by God's love and his mercy and his grace. Think of the way God speaks to you. Is that what passes through you to others? What James is urging us for here with the tongue is the same thing he's been urging us with for the whole first two chapters, the whole of our life, the whole of the person inside and out, that wholeness. Do we believe in Jesus? Has it been transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit? We can hear James leaning in a little bit here saying, church, be whole. 
Let the outside match the inside. Receive the Holy Spirit. Cooperate with his work in your life, especially what comes out of your mouth. I know this is a high standard. I know this leaves us with maybe a lot of things to consider. And I know that, can I just, let's just keep it real. This is not easy what James is encouraging us here to do, right? This is super difficult. As a culture, we have lost our moorings from like good teachers, good speakers, people who speak with integrity in the way that we're talking about. We don't have a lot of those examples. I get that. We don't have a lot of those people who we see speaking with integrity and living, acting in lives of humility, participating with the way that God does things. We don't have a ton of those figures. So I get this church, this is a tall order. But may we, looking to Jesus, see everything that we need here with the way that we speak and the way that we live. May we, church, even in our neighborhood, take the lead on what it looks like to use words as stewards of the mysteries of heaven and the grace of the kingdom of God. Could we be that community in South Austin or wherever we find ourselves that says, do it like me? Isn't this so much better? Could we be those that learn the language of God's love and truth, building up others, encouraging others, inspiring others, correcting others in grace and mercy? Could we be those people, those who are willing to walk with others and carry life with them and enter into their circumstance before we critique them and tell them everything that they're doing wrong? Could we be the kinds of people that have the patience to endure, to get messy in the lives of other people before we offer our wise insights? May we become the tongues that set the world ablaze with the gospel. That God is up to something beautiful. He's making all things new. May we be those people that set the world ablaze with that message. And friends, that message begins now as we stand and confess our faith and as we kneel and confess our sins. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.